Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Kaderna podcast. I'm Brian Kaderna. In today's episode, we'll be discussing how the big four index funds, Vanguard, BlackRock, State Street, and Fidelity, along with the rapidly growing yet somewhat secretive private equity industry, have amassed an unprecedented amount of wealth and influence over politics and economics. Joining me to discuss this concentration of power is John Coates. John is a deputy dean and professor of law and economics at Harvard Law School. He has served as general counsel and acting director of the Division of Corporation Finance of the Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC. And before joining Harvard, he was a partner at Wachtell, Lipton, Rosen, and Katz, specializing in financial institutions and mergers and acquisitions. John has testified before Congress and provided consulting services to the Department of Justice, the Department of Treasury, and the New York Stock Exchange. John's new book, The Problem of 12, When a Few Financial Institutions Control Everything, is now available wherever books are sold. Without further ado, let's welcome John Coates. Is going to require work and time and sweat and toil. If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Change is the only constant. The Kadena Podcast. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Yeah, I'm happy to have this conversation. I think it's, you know, very timely. And so obviously the title of your new book is The Problem of 12. What exactly does that mean? What is The Problem of 12? Sure. I, the Problem of 12 is just a way of capturing the idea that um, the American uh, Republic has always uh, attempted to fragment power, um, but capitalism in particular and in finance even more so, there, there are real tendencies uh, for economies of scale to produce concentration of, of control over financial assets. Um, and those two things cr repeatedly have created uh, a problem because mm -hmm. on the one hand, for financial reasons, um, a few people, 12 people, get control of a really important part of our overall financial system and therefore the economy. Um, uh, but at the same time, that gives them political power. It gives them social power. It gives them power to have influence beyond just the narrow technical financial function they're performing. Uh, and the political system reacts uh, to this threat of concentrated power. And we've seen it in history with banks, which are severely restricted in the U.S. and what they can do besides finance basically nothing. Um, they can't own General Motors or, or Apple. Uh, insurance companies have been banned for over 100 years from owning more than a modest amount of stock because insurance companies um, clearly um, do well at scale. The, the whole insurance model requires scale. Sure. And, uh, and then finally, we come to the book. Um, the last 30 years have seen um, concentration in asset management, which I think is producing a new problem of 12 for the country. Yeah, and we'll definitely get into that. I know particularly with index funds and private equity kind of hogging the limelight here. But would you say it's, I mean, over history, it just kind of seems like a story repeating itself just with different characters. You know, whether we go all the way back to, you know, the robber barons and 
the Carnegie's, the Rockefeller's, you know, things like that. It's money has to go somewhere. You know, it seems like the, the most talented or the, the smartest or the most aggressive are able to attract a lot of those dollars, get those economies of scale that you mentioned. And then there's a, a bit of a revolution of, you know, well, now how do we actually make this fair? How do we control all this? And then it just kind of seems like we, we rebrand some of where that money goes. Does it, does it kind of seem like that? Like we're always just kind of chasing our tail from like a very simple perspective. I, so, you know, this is, what's the right metaphor? Is it a circle where we're chasing our tail and we're getting nowhere? I think of it more like a spiral where we, we are making progress. It, it does get better. Banks still are prevented even now after, uh, you know, hundreds of years of struggle over what banking can do. And they're pretty effectively kept out of direct control of the economy. Same with insurance companies. So I don't think and, – and, and what asset managers do while related to what banks and insurance companies do is still a distinct function. So I, I – I, I don't, I don't quite have the sense of futility of like it always being whack-a-mole. No matter what we do, there's always going to be another problem somewhere else. Um, I do think it's a repeat problem because innovation and division of labor tends to produce uh, new forms of financial institutions. And then whenever there are new forms, the kind of economies of scale that have come up before drive concentration, and then we have a political problem. So... I, I'm maybe, you know, a little more glasses half full than fully empty uh, in terms of our ability to uh, to manage through it. Uh, I think predictably we're going to manage like there is going to be a political struggle. There's already one and there will continue to be one. And so sort of on some level, regardless of whether I think we can do it well or badly, part of the point of the book is this is what we're now talking about. And it's going to increasingly, I think, be something that people have to grapple with. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I didn't necessarily mean it that way. I'm certainly a, a half is you know a glass is half full kind of guy. And yeah. um, if you just look at the standards of living in our economy, and there hasn't been a Great Depression since the Great Depression, so I think things are certainly working way better than they they used to be. You know, a hundred years ago. Um, but so a lot of your book revolves around index funds and private equity funds. And can you just kind of clue some of our listeners in, like, how have these become so dominant? so quickly and is it a good thing like because i mean you think these they're such a so ingrained in, in our economy and our investment options today um but what are i guess maybe some of the pros and cons with how that that sector has exploded great so um as you know i, I talk about two fairly different kinds of funds index funds private equity funds. They're both in the asset management industry. They both do a job of taking other people's money and putting it to work in the economy um, and trying to earn a return for it. And then the people managing the funds, you know, pay themselves a fee out of all of that. So in some ways, like a fundamental level, they're similar, but of course they're very different because index funds buy a slice of public companies listed on the stock exchanges and private equity companies by the whole company, whether it's a public company or private company. Um, and so they're, they're making very different kinds of investment decisions on some level. Um, and so in that way, they're quite different. But I, I think they're also similar in how quickly they've risen. Uh, and, and really, if you go back to the year 2000, 
uh, I did not see my book coming. <laughs> like I wouldn't have <laughs> predicted that I'd be writing about these two types of funds back then. I would, I might have mentioned them because they were they were around and they were you know not trivial. But since about the year two thousand, both of these kinds of funds and the industries that they make up have grown at a compound annual growth rate of like fifteen percent or more every year consistently. I mean, there's been a little bit of up and down, but it's it's pretty amazing, the consistent growth. Mm -hmm. And that is vastly faster than the economy and faster than the growth in public company size. And so they're both starting to have, uh, already have a, a significantly greater presence in the overall um, economy and society and political system. Uh, than they did 25 years ago. Now, why? Again, uh, you know, a big piece of it is economies of scale, that once they got to a certain size, they could keep doing what they were doing even better, even more efficiently. So in index funds in particular, the the biggest completely dominate the space. Uh, the big four, Vanguard, BlackRock, State Street, Fidelity, sometimes left out because they used to not be indexed, but really they are mostly indexed now. Um, their, their assets under management are just much bigger than other uh, funds generally, and index funds too. It's very hard for new index funds to make a dent in this market because scale is just so important. Because basically the model of an index fund, of course, is to do almost nothing complicated. Um, yeah. That's it, that's a slight exaggeration. There are some technical things that are quite complicated, but basically they're just buying all the companies in an index. They're not trying to um, pick and choose stocks. Yeah. They're not trying to time the market. They're not trying mm -hmm. to hire investment professionals who can evaluate the underlying businesses. They're just buying everything. Yeah. And most of the work in those funds is the kind of work, back office work, technical work that really gets a lot easier the bigger you get. You, you can, you know, you can, there are fixed costs associated with running an operation like that. And that implies at a bigger scale per dollar, it's a lot more efficient, cheaper in the end for all the investors to use the big guys. And so once they got past a certain size, and I think it was around 2000 when that size threshold kind of helped, started really helping them, they began to systematically beat other forms of investment management that historically had had you know been thought to, to be better than index funds. The other thing I would say is about index funds is um, it's kind of a counterintuitive idea. I'm going to take my money and I'm not going to hire someone to try to invest it well. I'm just going to give it to them and they're going to buy everything. Yeah. They're going to buy the whole haystack as Jack Bogle used to say, not try to find the needle in the haystack. Um, and that is at first, not obviously the way you ought to go about having your money invested. And so it took a long time, 1975 to 2000, for the, 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 the bargain that index funds offer to seem attractive. And the bargain is, it's true, we're not trying to do anything other than what the market does, so you're not going to beat the market with us, but we're going to charge you almost nothing for that. And so you can get very close to market returns with us, um, whereas if you hire some professional, you can pay them a big fee, and then on average, they don't tend to beat the market 
So, and you don't know who's the good ones or who's the bad ones. If you think you know, you don't know. That basic pitch, I think, is pretty compelling to most retail investors, but it was not compelling for a long time. And so I think what's happened over the last 25 years is that pitch finally sunk into enough brains and enough people. Now you have Warren Buffett famously telling LeBron James, who asked for financial advice, just put an index fund. And, you know, LeBron James has a lot of money. So if at that scale, even Warren Buffett is telling him, use index funds, okay, that's a pretty compelling pitch. And that's an indication of just how successful they've become. So that's index funds. I'll say one word briefly about private equity. Um, the story of private equity is a little more complicated and a little harder to tell. So I'm going to keep it briefer. Sure. Uh, and the reason is the whole industry is designed to avoid disclosure. Like the, the, the very structure of everything about private equity is designed so that we don't really know actually what the performance activities and operations of the portfolio companies that private equity funds own um, is. Um, and even people who spent their whole lives studying private equity disagree about whether they uh, outperform or not. They have, however, convinced a large number of pension funds and endowments and sovereign wealth funds and the like to take a slice of their money and turn it over to them on the theory, I think mainly that it's a diversification play. We're a different kind of asset class and they've been able to um, do a great job. This is the thing private equity does best of raising debt capital to match with that equity. And so really I think private equity's um, value add is they're masters of the debt markets. Um, even though they're equity, they're, what really matters is that they can raise finance um, on the debt side of the balance sheet um, at, a, at, a, at a low cost and put that to work and then really push the risk return frontier uh, to make sure that they're generating enough uh, extra value to pay for their fees. And that, you know, like why that's taken off in the last 25 years, I'm a little less clear about, honestly, in part because they don't tell us anything. Yep. <laughs> so I don't really know what goes on in a detailed way in the uh, in the sales pitches that they that they roll yep. out. But they seem to have been doing pretty well. You just look at the numbers. Sure. And it's almost ironic when you look at kind of these two elements of your book where it seems like the index is saying, you know what, we're not going to beat the market. We're just going to participate in the market. And it's it's simple. It's here it is. You've got this index. And then the, the private equity is almost like on the other end of the spectrum of it's kind of hidden, you know, smoke and mirrors a little bit, you know, forget about, you know, we're going to charge you hardly anything. Uh, I know you allude to almost like the hedge fund structure, the 2% and 20% of profits. So it's a whole nother kind of pitch, um, but they've both grown simultaneously, which is almost counterintuitive. Like you, you wouldn't quite expect that. You think that they would be at odds with each other. It, you would. And I, I, there's probably a connection, although I don't know of any economic theorist who's really made it in a convincing way. That is, as more money gets indexed, that means that fewer people in a conventional sense are looking for market opportunities. You're taking the money managers who used to manage that in an active way out of the game. And you're just mm -hmm. taking that money and giving it to an index fund. All right. That means that um, there are fewer people competing for spotting and implementing new investment ideas from an investment perspective. And I think private equity, along with hedge funds, um, are um, the masters of that kind of thing. 
hedge funds have also grown. It's not part of my book, but um, but I yeah. think uh, both private equity and hedge funds, I think maybe partly have grown because indexing has grown. Um, it, it just gives them a little bit more room to look for uh, value-added uh, opportunities. Having said that, again, like I, I'm not making that claim. I just note that they happen at the same time and there, there could be an intuitive relationship. Um, I do think private equity is likely right now to go into some headwinds because of interest rate environment. It really affects the way they function differently than it does um, index funds. Um, and so you're going to see more variation, I think, in private equity than you are on the index side. Yeah. And to that point, I mean, it seems like index funds have kind of proved their worth, like whether you like it or not, you know exactly what it's done to date with the PE firms, because so much is kind of hidden. We don't, they're not disclosing all their trading activity and whatnot. Are the, the returns real? Like how does an investor or a pension fund, how do they know they're getting exactly what they're getting each year? And uh, is that something that you think is going to change in the future? Because if I was just an investor and I looked at, hey, over here, I know the track record is X. And over here, I, I kind of think the track record's Y, but I don't really know anything about it. You know, if I'm just a conservative investor, I'm obviously going to go the proven route. Um, what's maybe some of that lore there with the PE firm and how real are those returns? So, again, I, you know, as an academic and a former regulator and a, you know, a, a non-billionaire, <laughs> and somebody who doesn't run a pension fund, I don't really know. I can only tell you what I've heard secondhand. Um, and I've studied pretty carefully those financial economists who have managed to get data out of the limited partners, the investors in the private equity funds to study, uh, to see whether they in fact add value. And, 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 you know, the bottom line of the research, and I think most reports, is that they do earn money. Uh, they take more risk. The risk adjustment piece of looking at their returns is the hardest because you don't have a stock price. Uh, a private equity company doesn't, you know, isn't mm -hmm. trading by definition. It's it's owned by a single fund. That's what makes it, quote, private. It's not really private in, in a conventional sense, but it's um, out of the public markets. And so without a stock price, it's actually hard to come up with estimates of what the, the risk, the volatility, the variation in returns of those companies are. They don't even report public, of course, <clears throat> financial statements. You can't even track earnings in a quarterly way um, to see uh, whether the operating business is fluctuating a lot. So coming, coming up with estimates of risk and then matching it with the returns. The returns, you know, ultimately, presumably the limiteds do know. I mean, they put money in, they take money out, they can calculate the return. That part, they kind of, you know, they should know at least. Um, mm -hmm. But the riskiness of it is, I think, um, a big question mark. And uh, for the industry as a whole, there have been moments when some types of major investors in private equity have just said, all right, we've had enough. We don't, we're not convinced anymore. We're taking our money out. And then other people said, well, we've, we've been listening carefully and we think this is a good moment. So there's been more cycling in and out of private equity over, uh, over time. Um, the upshot is what I say in the book, this is not my research, I'm just summarizing. It, it seems like they basically match the public markets. So they're not doing better. They're not doing worse. They're kind of doing what index funds do. Now they charge bigger fees. Correct. So the only then justification for paying more for market kind of returns would be 
they're diversified. And there is some evidence that private equity follows a different kind of cycle than the public markets. Um, they're less sensitive to certain kinds of swings. If the stock market collapses in a given moment for like six months, that has less of an impact on the private equity side. Um, and, 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 and conversely, private equity, as I mentioned earlier, they're more sensitive to interest rate changes than the public markets. Public markets tend to go, you know, um, you know, they do react. There is an intersection with the interest rate environment, but it's not as sharp as it is on the private equity. So you just get a different um, series of up and downs for private equity versus index. And so then if you're thinking, all right, I want to diversify across different ways of getting market returns, maybe as a diversification play, it's worth taking some of my money and giving it to private equity. And I think that's basically uh, the, the way a lot of uh, the limited partners think about it. And so as an investor, whether it be an average Joe or, you know, the Harvard Endowment Fund, let's say, if if they're, you know, viewing these different options of where to put those dollars, can you clarify maybe a little bit like the the solicitation of those inflows? Because it, it seems like if I say, OK, I want to invest in Fidelity's S&P 500 index fund, there's not a, a whole team of guys I'm discussing, you know, what what can we expect here? We're not you know, kind of like, you know, in the back room having cigars and whiskey, thinking about the output. It's just so vanilla where it seems at least kind of the aura around the PE firms is that there is a little bit of perhaps like a, a good old boy network of, hey, my friend opened up this P&E shop with three other billionaires. You know, it, we're going out to dinner. We've been going meeting at these meetings. We've known each other for 15 years. Let's put a chunk of our portfolio in with those guys. Is that kind of how a lot of that can work, where that adds some of the value of, I know these people, I've met with them, I have like a feeling as opposed to the index fund is just raw math per se? Yeah, I, there's a lot to that. I mean, so a couple of technical points. Private equity funds are structured historically to have a, a limited lifespan, typically no more than 10 years. So they, um, they, they, they return the money, uh, typically, uh, <laughs> traditionally at least. And then that forces the private equity advisor to have to raise a new fund. So if you look at a typical private equity complex, you know, they're on like, you know, um, mid-cap holdings fund seven, right? And that, that, and that reflects, you know, seven different overlapping vintages of different funds that they've raised over the last 25 years. Every time they then have to raise a new fund, um, exactly to your point, they can't just say, go look at our uh, returns because they're not public. They have to have a private placement. They go on a roadshow. It's not quite like a public offering. It's private, so it's limited to a smaller number of, um, of offerees. But, and a lot of it does play, take place over dinners and in, in conference rooms, that, you know, and, and there's a lot of sales involved. Um, mm -hmm. It's how exactly are you going, is this private equity team going to add value given that there's all kinds of other competition for the companies that you're going to ultimately take over and run? And how are you going to raise capital on the other side in an efficient way to put you know, debt capital to, to, to boost what we're giving you on the equity side? And, and who is your team? Because remember, at the end of the day, they buy the whole company. And so you really want to know something about the competencies and expertise and routines and practices of the professionals that are going to be running the companies for the investors directly. Mm -hmm. Index funds, 
you know, as you say, or at the opposite end. They, it's not like they don't do sales. They do, but it's it's brand, right? They they want to they want to maximize awareness of the Vanguard brand, of the BlackRock brand, of the state, you know, et cetera. And they want to really hammer cost, 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 because that's where they compete um, uh, on on the margins. I will say, and this is more about where my book is coming from, the index funds now are starting to have to also market around their political influence, um, what governance positions they take. Are they woke? Are they anti-woke? Are they pro-climate change? Are they anti-climate change? That's actually going to, I think, start to complicate the traditional index fund asset gathering process. People are going to start paying attention more than they have traditionally and go, wait a minute, wait, Vanguard does that? I'm not sure I want my money there. I want to put it over here in this other one. Now, you know, they're all similar to each other in some ways, but when it comes to political influence, actually, they do function differently. And I, I think that's, as I say, going to more of their sales is going to be uh, starting to focus in on some of their political influence over time. But yeah, in the, a, the, the two in, the two industries are very different that way uh, in terms of asset gathering. Yep. Yep. And it, it almost seems like that's kind of a deviation for the index world where they, they pride themselves on being agnostic and saying we are what we are. The math is leading the way. Uh, and now they're starting to have that branding element perhaps of, of incorporating, you know, ESG, you know, motives and things like that, that I'm sure we'll get into. Um, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's, it's just, it seems like it, it's getting away from what they were created to do, which is to say, we have no motive. We have no emotion. We just participate as efficiently as humanly possible. I think that's right. I, I, I like one of the points I make in the book is that the governance role that they now play is totally accidental. It was not part of the original plan. Um, Bogle, when he created Vanguard, did not set out to have, you know, 10% of every company and be aligned with two other index funds that control another 15, 20%. So he, he wasn't setting out to take over the whole economy in that way. He was yep. trying to compete with asset managers and he, he's, you know, happily got to the scale he got before he died, uh, at Vanguard, um, from asset gathering, but it was a financial institution. This is where I, where I, you know, where we started financial institution for perfectly financial reasons doing a really boring thing so well that they end up with, and this is the accidental piece in a way, the votes that go with shares of stock, which then means they determine if they want to, who's on the board of these companies and mm -hmm. what prior commitments they have to various things and whether they're diverse or not and whether they um, are paying attention to risk return issues that are cutting edge and whether they're talking to their investors about it. Those kind and, and whether this merger that's being proposed is a good or a bad idea and whether the CEO's pay is like aligned with shareholder interest. That collection of things, you know, shareholders do determine today. It, it, they didn't used to. Like in the seventies, basically shareholders were like, you buy the stock, you pay no attention to it, you sell if you don't like what it's, you know, and you ignore the governance of the company. Yeah. Um, that that doesn't work anymore when you own so much stock, right? There's a fiduciary duty to at least think about the power you have, um, and the index funds can't just wash their hands of that and say we're we're just here to buy stock and we're going to pay no attention to the votes. Um, uh, they've been pushed by law and, and, you know, and, and their own, I think, sense of responsibility, frankly, to their clients, their customers, 
to think about votes as an asset. It, it is a form of potential gain. You can nudge companies in a more shareholder-oriented direction uh, or against it, depending on your perspective. And, and so if they were to ignore that, they would be ignoring something potentially of value to their customers. So they can't ignore it. Legally, they couldn't anyway. Um, yeah. and, and so they end up accidentally becoming governors uh, of, of virtually every public company. In that, I just want to ask a question on that, maybe draw a distinction with the index fund and the private equity. Is It, it seems like the index fund, I would imagine if they're saying, hey, we've accumulated these trillions of dollars. Now, by virtue of that, we have to have a say in these companies that we're invested in. I feel like their their argument almost would be, you know, hey, don't get us involved. We're just essentially the middleman. You know, we have a million investors out there that have put their money through us just for no other reason than exposure to those companies. And we don't care what they are. They just happen to be part of an index. So when there's these, you know, these votes and this, this influence on these publicly traded companies, I guess what some people might get confused by is like, so are now the 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 higher ups at the Fidelity, the BlackRock, the Vanguard, having to make decisions where why isn't that just the investors when it's actually their dollars that are inside those companies? Now, it's a it's a great question. Intuitively, um, you'd think somehow the votes would flow out to the ultimate investors, but they don't. Legally, ever since forever, the fund is treated as the owner of the shares. And the investors in the Vanguard fund or Fidelity fund, whatever, they're investing in the stock of the fund, shares of the fund. So they have a, a theoretical role in, in, in deciding who runs the fund. Practically, they, they always keep reelecting Vanguard to do that. That's why they went to Vanguard. Um, but it's the Vanguard professional staff who decide how to vote the shares in the fund of Exxon or Apple or good that on just the seems list. crazy to me. <laughs> it, it, and it's, uh, you know, it's one of those things that lawyers just all take for granted that other people look at us lawyers and go, what? Um, and you don't have to do it that way. I mean, like we could have written a set of legal rules originally where the funds were set up as pass-throughs. And you can, if you're big enough, if you have enough money, you can go to Vanguard and say, Vanguard, I don't want to pool my money with everybody else in a fund where you vote the shares instead, I want to retain ownership and I'd like you just to find an index for me and buy those shares for me. Separately managed accounts. But you have to be like in the hundreds of millions to get their attention to set up that kind of an account. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so the vast majority of the money that the index fund providers manage is in a fund or a series of funds. And those funds are are governed themselves by staff of the index fund providers. Now, in a lot of ways, this makes sense as a mechanical matter. So, you know, indexes are not static. Companies go bankrupt. We just had yellow trucks go bankrupt. So it's going to be out of the index pretty soon. And then if it's in one, and then uh, sometimes they're replaced, there's new IPOs. So you need people constantly paying attention to actually what's in the fund. And then as a routine matter, Companies, all companies, have to have annual meetings at which the boards get reelected, typically without much dissent. And, and then so then the votes have to happen. 
And most individual investors are not going to want to pay attention to 4,000 votes for 4,000 companies every yeah. single year, even to say yes. And, yeah. the, and, and legally, if they don't send their votes in, the board does not get reelected. There's a quorum. So you actually have to get the votes. So as a legal matter, um, companies would not like it, actually, if every individual investor. Yeah, the general public. Had to vote. It would make their lives very complicated. Um, so they're delighted on at some level with the funds doing it because they know the fund staff will quickly execute the votes, get it in and like keep the machinery going. But now you get to occasionally there are controversial issues that come up for a vote. And if we've treated it one way for one purpose, are we going to keep we're going to somehow change it? Now, I will say because of political reaction, um, which has been coming for a while, to the size and power of index funds, the index funds themselves are starting now to do something like what you just suggested. They're all, they've all announced, well, three of the four have announced, Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street have announced, that they're going to ask their own investors for whether they, those investors, want the fund to follow a certain kind of voting policy or not. And then they, yep. and then the index funds have a list and you can pick from one. And yep. one choice is just to let the index fund keep doing what they've been doing. Another would be to always do what management of companies wants. And then in between or beyond, you've got some policies that were developed by the proxy advisors, ISS and Glass-Lewis. One of those, just interestingly, is a little example is modeled on the U.S. Catholic bishops' investment principles. So if you if you think the U.S. Catholic bishops know how governance ought to function, you can pick that voting policy. And then now Vanguard, or actually I think it was in this case BlackRock, will at least in principle take that into account when they're deciding how to vote all those shares in one of their funds. If you yeah. own 1% of the fund, that'd be a lot of money, but let's assume you get really rich, Brian, and you own 1% of yeah. one of BlackRock's funds, and you tell them, I want to follow the Catholic voting principles, then they're kind, they haven't quite completely committed to this, but they've sort of suggested for 1% of the votes, we'll more or less follow the Catholic approach developed in, in, in ISS's write-up of it. That's interesting. So we're, it, we're getting this weird pass-through. It's not of the votes. But of its its voting policies, yep. which you know, it's sort of like platforms for political parties. It's that's kind of the analogy I would use. Well, that's what I almost envision is that it would at some point yeah. be like, okay, we're going to pass the buck to the investors and be passive in every sense of the word, and, and once a year send out a poll, you know, to investors, hey, if you want to respond, these are our policies, or what have you. Or if they don't do that, it seems like we'll have. Fidelity say we're the S&P 500 index fund that's almost free, but we support anything that's ESG and we're at the forefront right. of social issues. And then hypothetically Vanguard saying we're identical to that, but we support conservative principles. And so pick which index fund you want to go with it, 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 like for no other reason than like, yeah, you're getting your investment, but you're also casting your vote, uh, you know, with the company that aligns with your interests, which... I, I I do think that is the general direction that we're currently headed in. We're not there yet. As I say, these are policies. They're not votes. There's a lot of complication in taking any of these policies to real votes. So, for example, one of the area that I care a lot about is mergers and acquisitions. It's what I used to do as a lawyer, and I teach it. And I, 
and consult on it. And so I follow M&A a lot. And if you look at the policies about mergers, they say basically case by case. <laughs> so <laughs> the policy does not really answer the question, should we vote in favor of a merger or not? All right, now you might think that the big index funds always vote in favor or always vote against or only vote in favor if the stock market loves it when it's first announced or something like that. Nope, it's much more detailed. So Vanguard, you know, says in their own reporting, they voted against like 500 mergers over a couple year period of time out of like 7,000 votes. Um, and in order to figure out why, you actually have to get down into the details of each of those deals and they have a laundry list of things they look at. And so while these policies are going to, I think you're right, we're going to, especially on hot button political issues, I think we're headed towards a world where you'll have a more or less, you know, whatever, green or sustainable or SRI kind of uh, socially responsible investing kind of policy, or you'll have one that's, um, you know, strive capital and, and, uh, should just be about making money and forget all of those other things uh, policy. Um, those are going to be high-level policies. There's still going to be a lot of power really still exercised by these funds on day-to-day -day really important votes. Um, another area will be proxy fights where it's kind of hard to write a policy when really what's at issue are the people, uh, you know, like which set of people are going to get reelected or elected for the first time to the board. Um, and there aren't too many proxy fights, but when they happen, boy, they're a big deal. And it's not at all clear yet whether any of that voting will get pushed out to the fund investors or whether the funds are still going to want to hold on to it. I, I suspect they're going to hold on to that for a while. Yeah. And so just to recap some of this, because as I was reading, you know, the, the beginning part of your book, it seemed that um, if I can summarize in the most simple terms, it seemed like back in the day we had the robber barons, the Carnegie said, hey, I built this company from nothing. I'm alive. I'm here. I have my finger on the pulse of the company. I pull every string. You yeah. know, I call the shots because I'm Carnegie, Rockefeller or whatever. Then as time, their time came to an end, and then it seemed you had these board of governors, board of directors that were lots of times part-time. They worked at other places. They were almost like a distracted bunch that had some finger on the pulse, but it was more the, the corporate management and the executives that kind of steered the ship. And so is it is it turning now? Because it seems like everything we've discussed so far is now we are getting concerned about that board uh, that has to listen to the index funds or where all the dollars are coming from. So does the board have more power now than they did before, you know, the index fund, PE, all this conversation? Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Boards, when I was in law school forever ago, famously were, you know, ridiculed as being like mushrooms. You keep them in the dark and you load them up with fertilizer and that's all that <laughs> happens. Uh, today, I would say boards are, they're still part-time and they're still practically having and wanting to defer to management most of the time about most things, but they're much more likely to kick into gear, fire a CEO, change strategy, um, do a big recap over the objection of the CFO than they used to be. Uh, Why is much that? More, 
they're more contingently active. And I, and partly it's because of index funds. They know that yep. if they don't respond to criticism of a given company's strategy, finance, et cetera, et cetera, um, their own board seats are more at risk because all it takes, and this happened in the Exxon battle two years ago, all it takes is for two or three of the big index funds to turn against you and suddenly you're out of office. And in addition, remember I mentioned earlier, hedge funds have also grown. Hedge funds look for those places where managements and boards are seemingly out of touch. And they, that's where they launch activist campaigns and managements know they're ready to come in. And then the hedge funds, it's much easier for them to win if they can just go to a 12 people, problem of 12, just go to yep. 12 people at these big funds and convince them that the board needs to be replaced. And boards know that. And so they are much more likely to take action in, to try so, to, it, it, the, the, the standard way people talk about it is we're all our own activists now. And I think index funds are a big piece of why. I would imagine that the board, like one of the responsibilities would be to almost kind of blunt the, I don't want to say attack, but the influence um, from maybe like the index funds. Like you shared a story in your book of, uh, I believe it was engine number one, the hedge fund. Um, where not huge, and most people probably have no idea what that is. And then they were able to take board seats, you know, at, at ExxonMobil and push, you know, the sustainability and, and climate change initiatives. I mean, that is such a, a huge thing. I'm one of the biggest companies in the world coming from this hedge fund that nobody's probably ever heard of, except unless they're in the know. Wouldn't it be the board's job to say, hey, we're listening to the guy's boots on the ground at Exxon. They're telling us this is what needs to happen to remain profitable and to be, you know, a thriving company. And now we have kind of outsiders in a way coming in saying, we want to change the shape of your company and almost influence that, make that happen, or we're going to, we're going to kick you out. Like it, it shouldn't the board almost be that intermediary to say, you know, that can't happen. This can like, we're, rather than them just attacking to the CEO or somebody like that? Well, I mean, I they, I think they did. I mean, I think Exxon at the time of that proxy fight had been an outlier for several years in the oil and gas industry. They had spent the most on new development at a time when a lot of the other majors were pulling back. And they were also not the cheapest, Aramco and the others who are like sitting on top of oil, they're the cheapest producers. So Exxon was spending a lot of money and spending more than other companies. And so the board had been doing exactly what you just said. They had been helping defend the management team for those choices, which a lot of shareholders were skeptical about. And they had not done very well. The CapEx uh, had been a drag on earnings for Exxon leading up to that proxy fight which is why they were vulnerable, though, to the attack from engine number one, which was this hedge fund. And then making it even more interesting and, frankly, shocking is engine number one not only did a traditional activist attack, you're not making enough money, you're over-investing, you're wasting our money, you know, et cetera. They also said you're not green enough. You're not thinking hard enough about the transition to carbon neutrality. Um, Exxon, you're going to get caught flat-footed. Uh, you're going to have stranded assets. You're going to, um, we're, we're going to, we, the shareholders are going to lose a huge amount of money because you're not paying attention to the climate shift. Exxon, of course, as probably most people vaguely know, 
has not exactly been the greenest company in the world. They've been on the brown end of things. And, and so for that to become an, you know, an important part of this fight was, I think, really interesting and surprising. And it was the index funds that listened to both halves of that pitch, Exxon performing badly and it's an outlier and not green enough, that tipped the vote. And three people got put on the Exxon board over the objection of the existing Exxon board members who all renominated themselves. They, they thought they were doing a good job. And in fairness to them, they actually added another person in advance of the proxy fight to try to ward off the proxy fight, but it didn't. I work. remember that. Yep. Yeah. And, and so I, I do think boards play exactly the role that you're suggesting. They, they feel like they have to serve as a buffer between management and the shareholders. But all I would say is that when index funds are so concentrated, so there's only a few people that can swing the outcome of, of a, of a vote, shareholder vote, that makes the board have to be a lot more engaged with those funds and to listen to them, frankly. And even when they don't necessarily agree, they have to be a mediator between what the CEO thinks and what uh, these big funds think. Now, most CEOs are smart enough and self-interested enough to not themselves want to get alienated from the funds. And so they also listen to these index funds and pay attention to what they care about. Um, and so in the end, the board is, I, I don't want to paint a picture where like every day the board is having to play this role, CEOs take it on themselves. But I do think boards are, are more, um, they have to be more active than they used to be. It's, it's such an interesting evolution. And so is it the difference versus like 20 years ago that index funds have much more concentrated accumulation of assets than mutual funds did? Because it seems like before really the index fund, you know, mutual fund was a bit of the craze. So it seems like they would have had the same sway and the same power that we're describing index funds as having. Yeah. Did they, or was it not as the pack as much a punch? So you're right. The, 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 over, the standard mutual fund like T. Rowe Price or Fidelity's Magellan Fund, others like that, um, they experienced a huge upswing in assets in the 60s and 70s and beginning of the 80s. Um, before the index funds really took off. And, but the difference was that because all of those mutual funds were trying to pick and choose stocks, they weren't trying to just track the market. They were actually trying to pick a portfolio that was going to outperform the market. They made different choices. They, they, they deliberately distinguished themselves from each other. I'm going long in this industry. I'm going long on this one. I'm going short on this idea. So there wasn't the concentration of stock of, a, of every company in a small number of mutual fund hands. You had 500 mutual funds, each of which owned a tiny amount of stock relative to the total shares. Index funds, on the other hand, they buy everything and they all function exactly the same way. They're not trying to distinguish themselves from each other. And that's why they have economies of scale. So that's why we only have four of them, not 500, four yeah. that totally dominate the index fund space that that allows them to be really cheap, you know, five basis points or something like that for their annual uh, fee, you know, like a 10th that of an actively managed mutual fund. Um, but the result is concentration. And that's where the problem with 12 comes from. You go from mutual funds to index funds, seemingly very similar, actually in practice, very, very different as a governance matter. And so then when we're talking about kind of concentration of resources and power and, and political influence and a lot of the things we're getting into, 
where's the difference, I guess, from, yeah, these four are gigantic, but then we talk about, well, where are they investing in an in index? What makes up an index? And then we talk about an Apple, a Microsoft, an Amazon. Can Apple, more or less, their board say, oh, that's great. We, I'm glad you feel that way, Fidelity, but we're Apple. You know, we make up half of the index fund. I'm exaggerating, but yeah. such an enormous chunk. We're just going to do what we want, but thanks for your input. You know, ours, particularly like these tech companies and some of these mega caps, are they immune to some of this influence? I, I don't think they are. I mean, if, if they have a kind of immunity, it's been that they've done so well. And, you know, none of the index funds is likely to take a strongly adverse position if a company is outperforming. Um, uh, they reserve. So first, let me let me say one thing just to be realistic about this. The most, the biggest funds have, you know, a hundred people overseeing all of the governance of all of the companies. So <laughs> it's a tiny number of man hours or people hours per company that they can afford to spread around. So they're going to focus their time and effort where they think it'll have the best effect for their customers, their shareholders. They'll develop policies that'll affect their voting across the board because that they can do, again, economies of scale. They can come up with one policy and then apply it to every company. Uh, but when it comes to individualized interventions like at Apple or somewhere else, they're only going to pick companies where they think um, by spending a little time and talking to the board and possibly joining with a hedge fund who's threatening the board, they're going to improve uh, returns for the index as a whole. And so they're not going to typically go after you unless you've been underperforming. That's why I don't think it's a coincidence. As I said a minute ago, Exxon, you know, kind of like Apple in some ways, I mean, equally large in terms of market cap. Um, it was after two years of underperformance that they became the target of that proxy fight. If Apple goes into a two-year period where they can't sell iPhones anymore and their enterprise software starts to flatten and nobody wants to buy Apple Music anymore because, you know, it's been um, my kids use some other service that I'm not even sure what the name of is anymore. <laughs> um, it, you know, and if Tim Cook can't talk a good game about how he's going to fix it and if China throws Apple out and suddenly, you know, so if you go into a sustained period of underperformance, then the mere fact that they're big, I don't think will insulate them. I think uh, the index funds are going to look hard at at that board and say, what are you doing? Uh, you know, now the index funds almost never initiate change uh, on mm -hmm. their own. They're again, too big and they don't have enough money for any one company to spend time doing that. They leave that to others, hedge funds, um, yep. Bill Ackman, et cetera. Um, but they'll be ready to go. And if, you know, we've got a couple of years where you're not doing what they like and you're underperforming and someone else comes along, that's when their amazingly concentrated power can mean, well, that's the end of that story. You, you, you've lost that yep. battle. So it seems like we're discussing a lot of different lines of communication of, you know, where all this information and these feelings uh, are kind of flowing. Um, maybe kind of a case study, if you could add, you know, your opinion to it. If I, I'm just thinking as you're talking, you know, you look at Disney, I think it was last year or earlier this year when they had like the walk off, I believe at Magic Kingdom for yep. the employees. They didn't like I, whatever it was. DeSantis said something or something was going on Florida. I think about the 
the CRT training or something in schools, whatever the motive was where they all said, you know what, we're all employees that are in favor of this and you're not, see you later. And, and then Disney reacted to that and, and that gathered news all around the country. More recently, you know, we had, I think it was Budweiser, you know, decided that they were going to go out and run an ad with a, a transgender TikTok star or something and just got enormous backlash as if like they don't know who their customer base is. Those decisions, like where, where's the trigger point, I guess, did things kind of boil up from part-time employees walking off at Magic Kingdom? Or is there somebody up at Budweiser that said, you know, let's come up with this like ad that's so outrageous for our brand and let's run it and see what happens. Is that flowing from index funds or are there other influences? Like inside yeah, the organization. No, I. So you're 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 asking a broader question about politics in general, and I I do think companies, especially large branded, consumer facing companies like Disney and Budweiser, are facing real hard, frankly inconsistent pressures across their employee base, across their consumer bases. Um, you know, the company that owns Budweiser also owns other beers that are pitched to other kinds of clientele. And so, like, I actually do not at all um, envy the people who have to make, you know, fine-tuned, politically inflected marketing decisions at these companies. Uh, they're kind of, and, and they don't have a choice. It's not like, you know, I mean, the Florida law, which was about uh, sex education, uh, you know, provoked the pressure from the employees at Disney to Disney to say, look, we employ so many people here, you need to speak out about this. We're, you, you can't remain silent. And if they'd remain silent, they would have faced real labor problems. And, mm -hmm. you know, you can't run Disney World without Goofy. Yeah, um, it's like the silence is a so, statement of its own. So you can't ignore them. At the same time, you know, the governor of Florida, which controls, you know, a lot of things that matter to your business is also an important person to think about. And you're kind of caught in there and you, uh, uh, right. None of that really directly has to do with index funds. Um, other than the index funds themselves are under similar political pressures to pick and choose their moments of intervention. And, um, and I do think, as you were alluding earlier, we're going to find more and more pressure on the funds to use their voting power in similar ways. And I, so I think some of the stuff in Disney and Budweiser may well start showing up in, in some of the index fund choices. Uh, it hasn't yet. Like the index funds don't yet, for example, have a truly right-wing voting policy that they would even look at. And they don't really have a left-wing one either. I mean, they have climate, that's one, and you can think of that as left-right, but it's a little different than the cultural wars. Um, and then you've got um, uh, diversity that is more connected to culture battles, um, but it's usually board diversity. It's diversity at the board level, which, yep, you know, again, it's a little bit of a different animal than, than, uh, than the, the, the battles over schools, for example. Um, so, you know, politics is going to keep swirling around any large economic institution. Index funds are going to get pulled into that, whether they like it or not. And, and I think they're going to get pulled into it more because they keep growing. Like the bigger they get, the more power they have, the more power they have, the more they're going to get caught up in, in these political fights. Yeah. And so 
it, that was good. Thank you for that explanation. But if we could kind of pivot a little bit back to P and the private equity side, because that hasn't gotten too much of our conversation. Yep. A question I have in in the glossary, the very beginning of your book, the power of, or excuse me, the problem of twelve. Uh, you mentioned the four major private equity firms, KKR, Blackstone, Carlisle, and Apollo. And when you define them, you say, and I quote, now itself a public company, yeah. but sponsoring multiple private equity. Yep. What, what does that mean? I'm sure a lot of people read that and they're like, well, hang on. <laughs> yeah, I have a little section discussing it later in the book to kind of unpack it. But for, for, for now, here's the short version. Um, Private equity fund is fully private in the sense that they only raise money mainly from institutions. And, and because of that, they don't have to file documents with the SEC. They don't annual meet them to, to voting, et cetera. Um, they can remain largely in the dark. So the funds themselves and the companies they own, uh, including, you know, lots of very big companies are um, out of the SEC grid. They're, they're not part of what the public can learn anything about through public financial filings. The advisory companies that create the funds, um, uh, which, and they collect the fees for managing the funds, um, they found it convenient starting 10, 15 years ago to go public themselves. They raised a lot of capital to use in their advisory business. So, they're, they're increasing their capacity to create more private equity funds by being public companies. But when they file, and so they do have to file things with the public. So you can read the KKR 10K, you can read, um, you know, all of the major private equity funds. There's a couple that are still not public, but, but when you read those documents, what you'll see quickly is they're not telling you anything about the companies they own. They're telling you about their advisory business. We get a lot of fees from here. We get a lot of fees from here. We're active in credit markets. We're active in you know, this kind of fund, buyout fund. It's just a pure investment advisory business that's the public company. Um, there's a certain irony there, like they're, they're, they're public, but their whole business is around running privately held companies, meaning non-public, uh, non-disclosed companies. Um, and, but for whatever reason, that's, that's the, the, uh, the way they've evolved. So, and I read a, a recent, kind of staying in that same vein, a recent estimate that there's about $25 trillion of assets in private equity, venture capital, and hedge fund, um, which are obviously being pushed to disclose their investments so that people know what the heck these things are. What's your take on, on some of the regulation and the transparency? Um, you know, should there be kind of this this hidden space opposite all of the regulated stocks, mutual fund, index funds, or... Is there no place for that? Like, should everybody know what's above the board um, and kind of see what's well, going I, on? You know, in, I, I'm I'm a fan of disclosure. I, I think that most things that are truly good for the world uh, and good for the people doing them that are not harmful to third parties, you can talk about openly. You know, maybe with some lag if there's some technical um, uh, proprietary information. Um, you know, Warren Buffett somehow manages to do pretty well, even though he's running a public company. So I like, and, and partly the way he does that is he, he discloses investments, but kind of at a lag. He, he doesn't tell you currently what he's thinking yeah. about buying, but, but you can find out what he's bought in the past. So I, I'm a fan of disclosure. I also think it's very helpful in a broader societal political sense to be able 
for the public to sort of say to themselves, this isn't just about 12 guys ripping all of us off and getting really rich and then going to Mars um, or whatever your, your fantasy of what the, uh, the, the, the elite capital uh, managers do. Um, I, I think the reason that the U.S. has been able to maintain a healthy capitalist society for as healthy as it's been for the last 100 years is in part because most big economic organizations were public companies and they put out in reports and you could read what they were doing and you could satisfy yourselves more or less that what they were doing was generally aligned with the public interest. And so I think there's a value of disclosure. I actually think the private equity funds know this. That's why they actually put out voluntary reports now uh, that, that cover a range of topics like uh, sustainability, for example, they, they started doing that before the public companies, a lot of them. Um, but the difference, of course, is they're doing it voluntarily, which means that the information is not audited, not assured, there's no vetting, it's not comparable, you can't really tell whether what they're telling you is just a sales pitch or whether it's true, whereas the annual reports that they file with the SEC, those are much more carefully vetted. And so I, I now I, long answer right now, I don't think we should force every large investment fund to be a public company. I do think there's room for less disclosure in some settings. So I, I, I would be against the idea of just saying, okay, KKR, you're so big, you got to disclose everything. Um, but I do think there is room for something in between what we have now, which is virtually nothing and the full on mm -hmm. public disclosure regime. I think, an annual report with some audited financials that more or less tells you the kinds of companies they're involved in, you know, that kind of in-between disclosure. By the way, most countries around the world require it based on size. If you're above a certain size, doesn't matter whether you're listed on a stock exchange or not, you got to file some, some basic financial information uh, with the public. And I, I, I think we should think hard about that. I, it, it worries me to see the trend lines and to see a future where a third of the economy is invisible to journalists, to podcasters, to reporters, to investors generally. And finally, the best justification for all that would be if it was some individual's own money. All right, that's private, right? It's your money, you started the company, you can stay private. But that's not what public equity, I mean, private equity is about. Private equity is actually public in the following sense. They raise money from pension funds. Pension funds represent millions of people. Yep. So the money that's being invested by private equity really actually is not being invested just by a few like individual billionaires. It's being invested in the same way as public money is being invested. It's just channeled through other institutional investors so that technically and legally they count as private. That, to me, there's a difference, right? Again, if if I start a company yep. and I grow it to be, you know, a, a giant billion dollar company with VC money, okay, maybe that can stay private. I, I'm not so bothered by that. But if you take a public company, you get it bought out by a fund that technically is private only because of legal formalities. And then they run that company into the ground and have major losses inflicted on everybody I think there should be some disclosure about that and not have it just be, um, you know, oh, look, it's gone. 
Yep, I'd say so. And a question on that. So what's your take on private equity in such sensitive industries, such as healthcare, and in particular, nursing homes, assisted living facilities, things like that, when it just at surface level seems like a conflict? You have one entity that primary motive is make money. You have the other entity that's getting now governed and owned saying, we're just trying to help the elderly and the sick. Can you just kind of uh, add some context to that current situation? Yeah. Um, um, I, if my simple way of trying to understand what private equity does, we covered this a little bit earlier, but, you know, they push the risk through by borrowing. And so they have to be really aggressive in the way they run companies. And they typically traditionally are really severe cost cutters. And there are a lot of businesses where that's probably the right thing to do, um, even for the consumers. There's a famous case study of like Burger Kings that were owned partly by private equity and some were franchised and they did some comparisons. And the upshot was that private equity owned really cut the number of severe health incidents down while nevertheless cutting the number of workers down. So they save money and actually produce better, you know, really bad health outcomes, you know, improved. And that's largely because it's pretty easy to see whether you're running a really unhealthy Burger King versus not their inspections. And so, you know, private equity is going to respond to that regulatory constraint. They don't want to pay fines or have a huge newspaper article about how they're killing everyone. So private equity can do things really well of a certain kind. However, there are a lot of markets like nursing and healthcare and nursing homes and pet care where I don't trust our regulatory system to get the constraints right. We depend on doctors, nurses who are professionals to not take advantage of their patients. And we rely on professional decision-making to improve outcomes for the way those organizations function. I think that may be a pretty bad match for private equity. Private equity, again, comes in debt burdened. We got to cut costs. It's pretty easy to see how you can cut some costs in the short run that will improve sure. cash flow, but actually in the end, not be so great for patients. And the time frame on which private equity functions, five to 10 years, may not be long enough for the eventual reputational hit to come back uh, to bite them. Um, I think they're still trying to figure, I think the industry is still trying to figure out where they can and can't do well. They've stumbled in a few places, even by their own lights, they've lost money. And I think the regulatory system needs to pay attention to private equity moving into these new spaces, because I just don't think the other laws, like this is not securities law or the stuff I study, this is like health regulation and that kind of, I don't think they've been written with the private equity model in mind. They were written with doctors owning the business in mind or nurses dominating the business in mind. And yeah. those are two very different worlds. So if I were czar and I could sure. wave my hand, I would, really shine a light, most disclosure on that kind of industry for private equity. They really ought to be reporting in a faster cadence, more detail about what's how they're doing for their customers. Yep. 
Yeah, I think most people would agree too. Um, so a couple of final questions here to kind of wrap everything up. So there's a, a table in your book. Um, I think it was table 2.1, um, that showed that as of 2020, between index funds and exchange traded funds, that totaled about 16% of US market cap. Uh, and then there was another reference that private equity firms had about 18% of total corporate equity. So you add those together, and obviously they have, like we've been talking about, just exploded over the past, you know, 20 plus years. But when you do the math, that still leaves about 60% elsewhere that's maybe out of that purview. Um, so as we're talking about this gigantic economy, where's that other 60%? And is that still clinging to some sort of strength or influence that people who are getting maybe worried listening to some of this concentration of power can take solace and say, hey, there's still a lion's share somewhere. Yeah, I mean, so it's roughly divided between um, truly private companies, family-owned, founder-owned. There's a lot of those. I mean, a lot of both small, medium-sized businesses, obviously, but also even some substantial um, businesses are still, you know, owned by the founder or by their immediate descendants. So that's a, that's a chunk divided between that and the rest of equity that's owned in public markets that's not in index funds. There's still lots of, um, you know, there's still, T. Rowe Price still exists. Uh, Fidelity still runs some actively managed funds. Um, you know, the, the active management industry still, I think, can deliver returns better than the market indexes sometimes. I, I think it's hard for individuals to figure out who's, better and who's worse, but I do think some of them actually do outperform um, and, and, and can do that over multiple years. And so, uh, and then you've got the hedge fund industry um, uh, as well. Uh, and so the, that's the other half, family and founder on the one hand and non-index fund equity uh, on the other. I, I think the index, is however are, are like the forces that have led to them to grow are going to keep them growing for a while mm -hmm. um private equity i think is, so i, I think going to face some as i mentioned some some headwinds here with interest rates so they may not keep growing at the same pace but i think index funds probably will and it seems like it's inescapable because it's whether you're a part of one of these enormous pension programs, you know, whether you're, you know, involved with an endowment fund or you're just, you know, the 21 year old with your Robin Hood app saying, hey, you know, I don't know what to do. So I'll just buy one of the cheapest index funds that exist out there. It seems they're everywhere. And I feel like one of the elephants in the room, you know, a hot button issue talked about a lot now, Social Security, the solvency of Social Security. I just see the way that defined benefit pensions kind of evolved into defined contribution plans and now having more traditional investments. I'm like, if something happened to Social Security where they said, you know, we're going to cut that back a lot. And in turn, instead of paying that tax, now you can invest your money, that that would just be a enormous shot in the arm to index funds. And it's almost like Social Security is kind of this counterweight over here saying we're we're so huge. We're just as huge. Well, we're even bigger. And we're keeping that money away from there before we could possibly open up the floodgates. Yeah, so you're making a, a, an excellent point. Put aside the private, the, the, the non-government economy, which is what we were doing the percentages of a minute ago. Obviously, the government occupies a huge share of the U.S. economy. Um, and of that, 
the biggest piece is entitlements and the biggest piece of entitlements is social security and social security is nothing other than people in effect a mechanism for them to save for retirement which is of course what also people are doing uh when they invest in the public markets a lot of them at least um most of us and and so there is a in effect the relationship between the two in other countries you know they they largely don't have some countries don't have quite the equivalent of our social security all of it's done through uh, you know, investment through various schemes in, in the uh, public markets. And I do think you're right that if um, Social Security uh, demographics, you know, if if our ability to keep attracting enough young people or, or having babies uh, to keep contributing to the Social Security system doesn't keep pace with the payouts that people in retirement age are entitled to get, um, and if that we, you know, it, it's funny at, at different moments over the over my life, people have gotten very worried about this, and then for various reasons, the worries have subsided and they've recurred again. And I think a lot of it has to do, frankly, with attitudes towards immigration. Um, if we have a flow of immigrants, that's a way to continue Social Security kind of on its same path. If we really cut them off, which sometimes as a country we flirt with that would really threaten Social Security's viability. Um, and so if that happened, I agree, um, it would be a boost to index funds. Some people have actually called for index funds to be used to replace Social Security altogether. I, I you know, because I'm worried about their power already, I'm not sure I, I would rush to do that. I, I think we ought to figure out the problem of 12 first before we give them more jobs to do. But um, yeah, that's out there. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's crazy because it's kind of like it comes around and it almost has like a capitalism, socialism context of like, OK, if we do something like that, you know, we're obviously flowing much more money into the private economy and out of the government. We're shrinking the government, whereas if we keep all those entitlement programs large, we keep the government large. But that also means that we are able to suck some more dollars out of, you know, index funds and where all those companies are. So I know we've covered a lot of ground here, John, is um in the, the end of your book, and, and which is good, we didn't hit it all, but we have a book here, The Problem with 12, where people can go read that for more info. Um, what are some of the, the solutions here? Or if you could kind of like in a synopsis, what would you like to see in the, the future? If you could kind of you yeah. know, wave that wand, what would you so want? So the short version is, I think index funds are great as financial vehicles. So I mainly want to avoid destroying them. So that's the first principle. To avoid destroying them, certain ideas like take away their votes or, um, uh, you know, limit limit their ability <coughs> ability to buy more than a certain amount of stock. I think those are bad ideas. So instead, mm -hmm. I think the path they're going down is is a reasonable one. Find some way to be more transparent <coughs> with their investors about how they're using their power and to limit their power to some extent by letting their own investors kind of push them into having more moderated positions on different issues. So I think for index funds, that's a way to go. I also think they could do more to disclose how they come to the positions they come to. So a quick example, Starbucks had a shareholder vote on their labor policies this spring 
And the, and the index funds split on this, actually. State Street supported the resolution, which called for independent assessment, and Vanguard and BlackRock opposed it. And they told you that, so that's good. They're being transparent about how they voted. But if you go back to, like, January, February, as the vote was approaching, like, you would have not known what are they thinking about, what are the things they're considering, et cetera. I think they could do more to say, look, this is an upcoming issue. We're interested in views. Like, tell us what you think. Here's, here are the issues. Because they're, in effect, our representatives uh, when it comes to what could be, a, you know, for Starbucks, quite an important issue. So that's on index funds, more disclosure. Same story on private equity. I, I'm less sure private equity is great um, because they keep us in the dark. I don't really know for sure whether they're adding a whole lot of value to society. Um, so I think they could do more to tell us that they are, give us more financial information, let us see, instead of relying on them and their investors to to, to do it in private, I'm not sure that the pension fund representatives are necessarily the most savvy at assessing private equity. I'd like there to be a little bit more sunlight on on, on the investment side. Yeah. And so in both cases, I think disclosure is, is, a, is a good thing and one that would not harm what is good about these institutions. And I think that's a great way to kind of put a bow on it here. I feel in, in essence, we did almost come full circle and not to be cynical and say we're, we're whacking a mole like you mentioned earlier, but I feel like if they could do that and shine the light on it, there would be a lot of good. And then also a natural reaction is there'd be some iteration of private equity to say, uh, you know, we're still kind of doing the same thing under a different name where we're able to operate with a bit more freedom than this new regulated entity. I, I feel like that's there's that, you know, tug of war forever and ever of, you know, how can we have more freedom? How can we have more regulation? Um, so I guess we'll have to wait and see how that all unfolds. I, I think that's right. I, you know, last pitch, disclosure is in between. Like disclosure doesn't stop you. It just means you can do it, but you got to tell people what you're doing. So that's why I am enamored of it as a, as a, as a tool for, uh, for public oversight. Yep. That was great. Well, thank you so much for making the time today, John. And uh, everyone that's tuning in, again, you can check out his book. It's called The Problem of 12. Uh, it'll be available wherever books are sold next week, actually, uh, or depending on when this airs, it may be available right now if you're listening a little bit later. And so, everyone, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Kaderna Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna. Today, we had the pleasure of speaking with John Coates. And John, Brian, thanks, thanks so much for having me. All right, everyone, be sure to subscribe, leave a review wherever you're tuning in, and we will see you next time. This podcast is intended for the general public and for informational purposes only. The show does not provide any recommendations or investment advice regarding any specific account type, service, strategy, or product, or to otherwise act in any fiduciary or other capacity. Please contact a financial professional for guidance and information that is specific to your situation. Brian Kaderna does not provide tax or legal advice. Please contact your accountant or legal advisor to discuss your situation. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Kaderna Financial Team, and opinions stated are their own. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. References to specific securities, asset classes, and financial markets are for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a solicitation, offer, or recommendation to purchase or sell a security. Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003. 
Phone number 973-244-4420. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Hiderna Financial Team is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California insurance license number 0K04194.